Hey everyone, welcome to episode 23 of the RV Connects podcast. If you're joining us for the first time, welcome. I'm Melina and across from me is my husband Dan. Hello. And together with our teen and tween, we are the RV Canucks, an accident-prone, Griswold-style family of four who traverse North America in our travel trailer and want you to come along for the ride as we share tips, tricks, and stories to show how easy it can be to travel further on your vacations from work. On today's episode, we're going to be dialing the time capsule back a little bit to 2016 and a camping trip or an RV trip that we did in the Thousand Islands region of Ontario. And we are going to talk about the various campgrounds in the area, some of the activities you can do. And we're going to profile two of our day trips that we took to Bolt Castle, just on the US side of the Thousand Islands, as well as Upper Canada Village. I think maybe for everybody, just because this is a border trip, it's good to keep in mind that this is a trip that you can easily do whether you're based in Canada or you're based in the U.S. So the camping was done in Canada and the sightseeing was done partly in the U.S. A quick three quarters of a day trip across the border for us. Mm-hmm. So bring your passports. <laughs> and it's a nice easy trip across the border. It's not like crossing at Fort Erie or Detroit or Sarnia. It's a real small border crossing. Pretty friendly. Easy going. Mm -hmm. The main reason we wanted to do this trip was to actually visit Bolt Castle. So we designed the trip around that visit. And Bolt Castle is located on Hart Island. So that's just between the shores of Wellesley Island and Alexandria Bay, New York. And Bolt Castle is a historical home. It's a six-story, 120-room castle. So it's complete. It's got tunnels. It's got a powerhouse, Italian gardens, drawbridge, a children's playhouse. When we say playhouse, it's like a mini castle castle in itself, I think several levels and a dovecote. Uh, so essentially not a single detail or expense was spared. It was built in the Gilded Age at the turn of the last century. It was built by successful self-made businessman and super rich guy, George Bolt, who was most well known as the owner of both New York City's Waldorf Astoria Hotel and Philadelphia's Bellevue Stratford Hotel. And to the chagrin of anyone who has ever had to work in retail, he also invented the phrase, the customer is always right. So though Bolt owned several hundred acres on neighboring Wellesley Island and summered with his family there, construction on the castle began in 1900 as the ultimate show of love for his wife, Louise. But construction on the castle was halted unexpectedly in 1904 when Louise died suddenly and Bolt never returned to the island. So the mostly completed structures were just left to the mercy of the elements, really. And they were acquired by the Thousand Islands Bridge Authority in 1977. So what they did was they began charging for tours to the castle and began using the net revenues of the castle operations to continue to restore the castle and the grounds to their original state using the original castle plans. So what's great about this is that if you visited the castle in 1977, 1990, you know, even between 2014 and 2016, when we went, my parents went a couple of years ahead of us to visit, it was remarkably different than when we went. So what they do each year is when they make revenue on the castle, they put those funds back in to the castle to keep renovating it. So something if you've been there 20 years ago, and it was just moldy, broken down plaster and graffiti everywhere, you're going to return, you can return again and again to a much different property, which I think is kind of cool. And I certainly would like to go back again very soon and see how 
things have changed in the last four years even. But it's even cool if you just do a single trip once because I think what's really cool is that you see all the stages of restoration. You see kind of the crumbling bits right through to the finished bits. And so you get to see all the work that they're putting into it and you see all the stages of it. Mm -hmm. And I think when we went, they had a bedroom kind of on one of the upper levels where they were purposely leaving it the way they found it so that no matter how restored the castle got, you would always see kind of in what state that they found it in. And there's also uh, like a yacht house, which is located on Wellesley Island just across from the castle. And that can be accessed by a free shuttle from the castle. And the shuttle over is free, but if you pay an additional sum, you can tour the yacht house and the yacht master's home, which is attached to the yacht house, which I totally recommend. And we'll go over the fees, but this visiting Bolt Castle is certainly, you're not, you don't need deep pockets to do it, which is fantastic. But inside the yacht house, there's a collection of antique wooden boats, courtesy of the Antique Boat Museum in Clayton, New York. And many of the boats there are actually from the original Bolt Castle fleet. And that includes an 1892 steam yacht, which was kind of like the hallmark of the rich and famous who kind of cruised up and down the Thousand Islands area during the Gilded Age, kind of the late 1800s and the early 1900s. So the boat keeper's cottage or the yacht keeper's cottage, which I mentioned in and itself, like that building fascinated me to no end because of the detail, even in this like very, you know, industrial type building, it was meant to house a worker and things like the the um, living room ceiling, all of the wood strips are cut and fashioned so that they look like a ship's wheel on the ceiling of the living room and the the ornate carvings on the staircase and things. It just, it really speaks to kind of the level of detail on the entire property overall, which I really enjoyed. And it's kind of symbolic of the area in general because you're part of the St. Lawrence Seaway and as much as there's tons of people doing RVing and traveling in hotels and bed and breakfast, there's a lot of people that do pleasure craft and marine trips through there as well. And so there's lots of big cool houses in the area and mm-hmm. fancy boats and things of that nature. Yeah. So as I mentioned, visiting the castle is pretty reasonably priced, certainly compared to some of the other historical homes we've visited. It's basically for the for the main house tour, it's $11 US for adults. So that's 13 and up. And it's only $8 US for children ages five to 12. And anybody four and under is free to visit the yacht house. There's a $6 fee for adults and a $4 fee for children. However, they have a special package rate. So if you if you purchase tickets for both the castle and the yacht house, you can visit for $14 for an adult fee and $8 for a children's suite, which is fantastic when you compare it to things like Hearst Castle in California or... Castleoma. Castleoma in Toronto. Thank you. The fees to get in are like triple that. So... I think your value for money is there. You'll have the additional cost of a tour boat to get you there, unless you are endowed with your own private watercraft. But the castle itself is only accessible by watercraft. So Bolt Castle is actually an official point of entry into the United States. So you can access the castle via one of the many tour operators that operate in and out of the area. Or if you do have a personal watercraft, like I said, you can dock there. There's ample parking. And then you can use that as a port of entry into the state. So like I said, don't forget your passports. When we went, what we opted to do was we drove across the border via the Thousand Islands Bridge to Alexandria Bay, which you can see the castle right from the little downtown. But Alexandria Bay itself is a super cute little harbor town. There's a ton of cute shops, restaurants, wineries, distilleries to visit in the area. And we took Uncle Sam's boat tours, which was like, I don't know, five minutes. Was it even 10 minutes? Wasn't very long at all. It was basically just a glorified ferry that took you from the the, uh, harbor in Alexandria Bay just right across 
across to the castle, but it did circle the island a little bit, Heart Island, so you could see. But that was a really good place for us just to kind of, it was a cute little town to visit. And if you want to get a feel for the US side, there are uh, tour boats though that come from all over the Canadian side as well. So I guess that leads us to our next category and that's where to stay. So there is so many camping opportunities in the Thousand Islands and in the immediate surrounding area, surrounding Bolt Castle, there are four state parks on the US side and there's over eight campgrounds within a 15 to 20 minute drive of the castle and probably another 15 to 20 if you if you double that driving distance. Like there are so many places to camp. So our original plan, we actually had two plans. So our first choice was to stay at Wellesley Island State Park. And the reason was because they had a very small contingent of fully serviced RV sites, which you normally don't get in provincial parks or state parks. So I was excited about that, but they were completely booked. And then we decided possibly to go to the Thousand Islands Ivy League KOA, which is on the Canadian side, has fantastic rankings, but we were too cheap. And we'll talk about that a little bit later, but we ultimately decided to stay at the Ivy League campground. So that's located directly at the base of the Thousand Islands Bridge on the Canadian side, and it's operated by the St. Lawrence Parks Commission. So it's kind of like a regional campground. And the St. Lawrence Parks Commission also operates 15 other campgrounds in the in the immediate area, and they also run several historic sites, including Fort Henry, tours of the infamous Kingston Pen, which I'm going to digress for a little bit here. So Kingston is a city 35 minutes west of Gananoque or uh, 35 minutes west of the Ivy League campground. It's a fantastic day trip if you're camping in the region. Kingston Pen is like, I don't know, it's our version of Alcatraz or like Sing Sing. It's our very famous prison. It was the site of the last public hanging in Canada in 1962 and has like a long and storied history. So they do tours there. Uh, Kingston's super old. It was founded in 1673, which for North America is certainly old. Has lots of cool little alleys and shops to explore. And for those who don't know, or for our American listeners, Kingston actually used to be Canada's first capital city, but only for like three short years because of the proximity to the USA and its vulnerability to attack. So they moved it inland uh, to Ottawa, where it sits today. So if you visit Kingston, check out the Kingston Ghost Tour. We've talked about this before on episode 12, the five most haunted places we've ever camped. And the Kingston Ghost Tour was literally one of the favorite, my favorite ghost tours that I've ever been on because of the accuracy and the animated stories about the actual history of the city. Like not including, like aside from all the other ghost stuff, they had a lot of ton or they had a ton of really cool information just on the city itself, which... I remember one of the stories that still sticks in my head is a city park that's much like any city park with benches and green space and big trees. And it was actually used to be a graveyard in the city and a fella telling us Mm -hmm. how he used to play in it when he was a little kid after it had been reclaimed as a graveyard and I don't think they got all the pieces out so Mm -hmm. to speak and Kingston's also a university town so it's it's pretty lively in itself but the history of the university there's like there was a medical contingent to Queen's University and they literally had to have grave security because the medical students would rob graves in Kingston way back in the day to use them in medical school so grave robbing was like a huge issue in early Kingston so things like that that are actual history that just kind of tie into the creepy ghost thing is is a pretty fantastic thing to do if you're in the area. And so it's a waterfront city mm-hmm. right down on the water and it's also home to not only Queen's University but Royal Military College. Mm-hmm. 
and the tragically hip so for any Canadians who like music and Americans just check them out uh the St. Lawrence Parks Commission so they also operate Upper Canada Village so we also visited this trip and we'll talk about that a little later in the episode so Ivy League Campground there's a variety of sites available there's unserviced waterfront tent sites which are clearly for tents but we saw a number of people trying to squeeze trailers into them and I would not recommend Um, It's very rocky. There's a lot of roots coming out from trees, very unlevel sites. And there's also unserviced and partially serviced RV sites. So uh, electricity and water only and basic cabins to rent. So the fees range from about $40 a night for an unserviced site to $99 a night for one of the four cabins they have available. And operating dates are pretty typical for Ontario. May, usually Victoria Day weekend, so the May 2-4 weekend, right through to Canadian Thanksgiving in mid-October. So amenities, do you remember much about the amenities? It has a small beach and you have to hike underneath the Thousand Island Bridge to get to the beach. I don't remember the swimming being bad, but it's certainly not a long sandy beach. It's Mm-mm. maybe a little bit closer to something you might think of in northern Ontario maybe yeah I would say kind of but I mean but your kids will have fun splash around yeah it's certainly not a huge swimming beach it was very small like I'm gonna say maybe 50 feet across I could be wrong because I'm four years out but I remember that it was it was um, shallow and it was sandy so you're not gonna spend the whole afternoon at the beach but Mm -hmm. you're gonna get your kids cooled down and get a little energy out of the system it's got a boat launch it's got seasonal and transient boat docks there and i remember taking the girls down to fish from the docks Mm -hmm. and if you've got young kids and you just want to get a fish not necessarily something for the frying pan but just to get them excited Mm -hmm. it's a good spot for doing that for young kids yep activity shelter sports field playground you know your usual kind of stuff so funny story about the playground is that there was a there's a tetherball there or a couple of tetherballs there and our kids had never seen tetherball and I think this is probably a product of like our litigious society where like half of what we played on as kids zip lines and things like this they tend to not exist anymore so there's not a lot of tetherballs around they don't, certainly don't have them at their schools and things so the kids wanted to know how to play it and I was teaching the kids how to play it and Isla so this was 2016 so she would have been eight and I basically smoked her in the face so hard with the Teller Brawl that she fell over. And um, our kids are tough as nails. So she got up and laughed and declared it the best game she had ever played and spent the rest of the time trying to smoke Fiona in the face with the ball. Because well, I think she thought that's how you played it. She seems to like that kind of stuff. She's a, a hockey goalie now and she takes one off the, the looker at least once a week. She gets a puck right to the face. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Doesn't seem to bother her. So overall impressions of Ivy League Campground. Coming in the front gate, I remember that it was a little tighter, not lots of space to get in the front gate and get checked in. So that was a little bit awkward. And Mm -hmm. then once you find your site, the road is a one-way road, but the sites are not all angled in such a way that if you follow the one-way road, you can easily back in, which means the one-way road really needs to be a two-way road depending on which way your site is angled. Mm-hmm. Getting into the site was fine, level, open, not tons of privacy. but I Like think we no were, privacy, I would say. But we were fine. I mean, hey, at the end of the day, it was a... It was a place to sleep, really, because we were doing day trips, right? Yeah, we were doing day trips. We're only there for three, four nights, tops, probably three nights, tops. And so, hey, if you end up with a bad campsite, it's not the end of the world. I was fine with the girls walking around and riding their bikes and stuff like that. That was fine. Never felt unsafe. I do remember one of the nights... You know, and and a few weeks earlier, we had had to replace the water pump in the trailer. And Melina said, "Uh, we don't have any water in the trailer. And Mm. so my heart sank only to find out that there had been some people had overstayed their welcome and that the park staff had told them to move along. However, when they decided to move along, they hopped in their really old 
RV, which I think they live in, and drove off. Water and power connected, which caused a major plumbing problem for the park who had to shut the water down for a couple hours. Mm-hmm. So I forgot about that. So that was a little bit interesting. Like I said, it was it was safe. I didn't have any problems. But what I do remember is a contingent of people, and I don't know if it was one family, one group, a one-time occurrence, who were continually washing their dishes at the water poles in other parts of the campground, which left little bits of food, as opposed to scraping your plate, doing it in a wash basin, and properly disposing your water. So not sure that everybody who camped there was well experienced in what they should and shouldn't be doing mm-hmm, for sure so again hey i never worried while i was there but mm-hmm. you know i don't think i want to spend a two-week vacation there. for sure yeah you didn't get that sense of relax that you normally would at like an rv resort and i remember so the swimming was great the water was like pretty calm and cool but i remember it was really loud because the the beach is really right at the base of the bridge and that's a highway bridge is the main bridge that is the canada u.s border crossing it's not it's not like busy like you would find in major city border crossings. But I mean, there's certainly enough traffic that it, you kind of have to shout at each other if you're on the beach to kind of you you can't have a quiet conversation, put it that way. But I would say overall, like if when we do this trip again, because I am I know we'll return to the area sooner rather than later, I would either stay at the Ivy League KOA or the Wellesley Island State Park Campground. But Google reviews are really, really good in that area. So just hit Google up and there's there's really accurate reviews. I read through a number of them before doing this show just to kind of refresh my memory but uh, let that be your guide i think on on which places you pick to stay but also to listen folks like if you're passing through the area and you're not going to bolt castle but you need a spot to stay for one night it's fine to just jump in there and stay there i wouldn't sweat it out oh yeah for sure i you know if we had no other option again i would stay there again that's definitely um so the other day trip major day trip we took when we were there for this uh trip was to visit upper canada village so upper canada village is like a historical village it's themed to the 1860s specifically they have picked the year 1866 and it's one of the largest historical villages we've certainly been to. It's one of the largest in Canada. Uh, There's over 40 buildings on site arranged kind of in proper village format. So it really covers a large area. I think if you're going to do Upper Canada Village, you definitely need an entire day. I think we got there a little bit after opening and we were there for about six hours. And I think we still probably could have stayed a little bit longer to see everything. Like I feel like the last little bit, we kind of rushed it before they closed. So certainly give yourself a full day to visit. You'll need that. So most of the most of the buildings, actually, interestingly enough, uh, were all relocated there from what are known as the lost villages of the St. Lawrence. So these were from villages that were flooded to create the St. Lawrence Seaway, which is like a major shipping hub. So uh, before that happened in the 50s, is it 50s, 60s? About that time, they relocated all the buildings over and created Upper Canada Village. So there's costumed interpreters, they have working mills, uh, farming technique demonstrations, houses, a church, you know, there's like a tea room restaurant. There's camping programs for kids that are like, I believe they're overnight programs. And there's also day programs that kids can go and they dress up and they live like they were living in 1860s, which is kind of cool. So it's located right beside the Chrysler Farm 18 War of 1812 Battlefield and Memorial. So there's that whole kind of swath from Gananoque all the way down uh, past Kingston and around to like Niagara is all full of War of 1812 battlefields and sites and forts and all that kind of stuff. So it's a really interesting area to visit if you're interested in that type of thing and on the Canada side and the US side for sure. 
I remember going to Upper Canada Village when I was a kid. We were probably 10, 12. We were doing a trip out east with my parents and they took us there. And I don't know if it's changed, but I remember it being the same as when I went there, at least in the experiences that we had. And if you've got hands-on kids that like to try stuff, ask questions, it's very interactive, very interpretive, lots of looking, touching, seeing how things work. They make flower on site. Kids will see how that's done. You walk from one building to the next building to the next building. Your kids are going to be tired, which is good at the end of the day. And it's not a yawner museum. It's not something that you're like, mm, you're going to get in there and and see something that stimulates you the whole way. Oh, for sure. And I think in one of the house gardens, they had a gardener there. And remember, we went into that garden and they were explaining how obviously like there's dentists and stuff, but there's no painkillers and things back then. And they had some he had some kind of plant and he broke off a bit of this plant and had us chew it. um, Because that's what the dentist would give you before you had to have a tooth pulled because it would make your mouth go numb. And this thing we we like bit just like a tiny little bit of this plant. He said, Okay, like, you know, chew it and swish it around your mouth and spit it out, which we all did. And literally, I think probably it took like three hours for the feeling in my mouth to come back. It was amazing. But yeah, definitely. That's kind of like hands on thing that you can do. Dan mentioned the flour mill. So they have a they have a flour mill that they mill. And then they have they bake bread and they make cheddar cheese right on site. And they sell it at the gift shop, which if you're going to do that, we did not know this until we like left for the day that they do this, they put out daily bread and cheese. And when we went to the gift shop on our way out of the park, it was all gone. So if that's it, and literally it was the best bread I've ever had because we ate at the, uh, what's called the Willard's Hotel. So it's a hotel in the middle of the village that serves food. And um, they have the best bread I've ever tasted and the cheese was phenomenal. But I would suggest the gift shop you can access without buying a ticket there's a door into the parking lot. So if you're going to visit for the day, bring a cooler, maybe pick up some cheese and some bread, put it in your car and then go in and do the tour of the village because it will not be there at the end of the day when you go out. The other thing too, I remember one of the funny stories we heard as one of the reenactors, I think it was at a print shop looking at the girls and saying, hey, if you were six years old, you'd have a full-time job by now. So whenever they start complaining about chores or doing schoolwork, I just remind them of that story and threaten to send them in the full-time workforce. Mm -hmm. And Upper Canada Village is where I picked up one of my pieces of useless knowledge that I bring out at parties about cheddar cheese and why it's orange. And the reason is because that um, obviously Canada was British back in the day, right? Cheddar cheese from Britain, like cheddar cheese is naturally cream colored. Like it's not, it's not orange, but they were really trying to push British cheddar. So the, the law was that you had to dye cheese that was made in British North America, so Canada, uh, that you had to dye it orange. And the reason it's orange is because they use some kind of plant-based dye that turns it orange. It's a natural berry type dye. And it kind of turned into this class thing. Like if you could afford the tax on the fancy cheddar from Britain, like that's what you would serve your guests. And it was kind of like, you know, the poor people would all eat the orange cheese. And that's the reason cheddar cheese is orange. It was a law, basically a class law that made British cheddar from Britain you know, fancier and better than North American cheddar. So there you go. There's your piece of useless knowledge. Uh, So the dining, really unusually for places like this in Canada, there's the Willard's Hotel, the Harvest Barn, the Village Cafe. So the Willard's Hotel where we had lunch was fantastic lunch. And the Harvest Barn are both licensed, which is really unusual for tourist sites like that for us in Canada. And let me tell you, when we went, it was like a million degrees. It was the middle of summer. It was the middle of July. It was hot. So to sit down and be able to have a nice beer in an air conditioned room is like fantastic. So if you're into that, make sure you stop for lunch. 
Uh, they also sell beaver tails there, which for our American listeners, I guess is like the Canadian version of a churro. It's like our national dessert or like an elephant ear. I'm sure they have those in the States where it's just kind of like fried dough with like... Kind of like a big donut. Yeah, with like a big flat donut on it. with lots of sugar on it. And you can put Nutella on it and cinnamon and all kinds of stuff. But they're fantastic. So one other thing I wanted to mention about Upper Canada Village, they have a ton of events going on through the year. And they also have like a log cabin within the bounds of the park. Just one that's available for overnight guests. So if you book an overnight there, you have to also book park tickets, but you can stay overnight inside the village overnight, which I think is really neat and really cool and something to check out if you're looking for something different. Sometimes when we go RV camping, we leave our RV and we'll go to a hotel nearby just for a treat like we did in California. So if you're looking for something cool, that's something neat as well. Sounds spooky. It's not spooky. It looks really cool, actually. Okay. Uh, Well, on that note, um, we will talk to you again in two weeks where we are hopefully getting a little bit closer to spring weather and we are going to talk about the best and easiest ways to de-winterize your trailer. Bye-bye.